Now, during David's fugitive years, while he was on the run from Saul, David slept in caves. He slept out under the stars. Had his little pop-up that he stayed in. But now David is living in a palatial mansion built with timber from the great cedars there in Lebanon. And he's starting to feel guilty because King David is now enjoying the lifestyle of the rich and famous. He's enjoying the palace life, whereas God's ark, the presence of God, was resting in a tent. And he wants to do something about this inequity. He wants to build God a house, build God a temple. And that's where we begin in chapter 17. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tents, tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But Nathan spoke too soon. I I imagine that the prophet was impressed by the king's desire for God and, and just sort of got caught up in David's fervor for the Lord. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day. But have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. God's presence, God's glory had rested over the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark had been occupied a tent since the days of Moses. The tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness. The, the Ark at this point had been in that tent for some 600 years. Whenever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The God who is always on the move. He's never complained about his accommodations. God had been content with a tent. Now, therefore, thus says, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. In other words, God's saying, I'm the one who's responsible for your great rise to prominence. And boy, you talk about a roller coaster. David had been on it from a small shepherd boy to now the king over all Israel. And God's reminding David that, hey, I'm responsible for this dramatic turn of events in your life, for this elevation that you've received. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. Notice that. You see, David starts out wanting to build God a house, but instead God promises to build David a house. And he's not talking about a literal structure. He's talking about a household of rulers, a dynasty. God says to David, David, I'm going to build you a dynasty of kings that will succeed you. Your 
household will be great and will rule Israel. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house. Now David's son and his immediate successor Solomon fulfilled this part of the covenant. Solomon did succeed David, and Solomon was the one who built the temple, not David. He says, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. You remember, the right to rule had been stripped from Saul and given to David. But not so with David's heir. His throne, his authority would be established forever. Now, David's son Solomon became the heir to David's throne. But he only partially fulfilled these promises to David. Yes, Solomon did build a temple, but his throne didn't last forever. In fact, we'll discover that the Babylonians dethroned Solomon's final successor, a man named Zedekiah, in 586 B.C. No, God is promising David a descendant who will establish an eternal kingdom. And there's more. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Notice, he will be established forever. A king will come, a descendant of David, who will be established forever. And guys, this is the part of the promise that ignited the hope in the hearts of Jewish people, not only in David's day, but in the years and centuries since then. Throughout their history, they have been energized and excited by this hope that a king will come from the loins of David and who will sit on the throne for all eternity. Now here's the entire promise. Here's what we call the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David. Here it is. A forever king will sit on a forever throne and will rule over a forever kingdom. Remember that. A forever king will sit on a forever throne and rule over a forever kingdom. This was what God promised to David. Now obviously the scope of this prophecy looked far beyond Solomon to a future king, a future ruler. A Jewish king who came to be called the Messiah. The Greek translation is Christ. Both Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one. The rabbis have always seen in God's covenant to David a dual prophecy. Fulfilled partially by Solomon but ultimately pointing to the Messiah. To the king of kings. In fact... Really, the rest of the Old Testament is dedicated to identifying this coming king. Isaiah tells us how he'll be born of a virgin. Daniel communicates when he'll be born after the 69 weeks. Micah tells us where he'll be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. The rest of the Old Testament points out the heir to the Davidic covenant. And this is why the New Testament writers, Matthew and Luke, go to such extremes to trace back the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to King David. For Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. 
Jesus was the ultimate promised son of David, the forever king who would reign on the forever throne forever and ever. Understand, anyone who claims to be Savior or, quote, Messiah and cannot trace his lineage back to David is an imposter. Now, it's interesting. Shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, 70 A.D. to be in fact, the Romans burned the temple to the ground. And in doing so, the genealogical records of the Jews went up in smoke. They were turned to ashes. In other words, God cut down all the family trees because they were no longer needed. Why? Because Messiah had already come. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus had proven His Davidic ancestry. He had proven that He was the Messiah. Therefore, those genealogical records were no longer needed. Therefore, anyone who comes along today and who claims to be Messiah or claims to be Savior, ask them to see their genealogical records. They, they must be able to prove their heritage and their descendancy from David. And if they can't, then there's only one conclusion that they're an imposter. Obviously, Jesus is the Messiah. He is this chosen descendant of David who God promised would come and would fulfill the great promise of forever king who sits on a forever throne and rules over a forever kingdom. Now, verse 15 tells us, According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And now David replies to God, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? How often have I said the same and marveled at God's mercies toward me and my house that you have brought us this far? You know, at times we get down about our spiritual progress. But hey, let me just remind you, take an inventory tonight. Don't just look at where you want to be. Look at where you used to be <laughs> and how far God's brought you. That can bring some encouragement. I love what David says. Oh, Lord, how many times have I sat down and just thought of how far you have brought me? God has brought us all so far. And the good news is, is he's not through with us yet. He has a wonderful plan for us and for our family and for our church. Let's be thankful both for how far God has brought us and also for how far He wants to take us. Yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Understood? Stand there. David grasped the long-term implications of the covenant that God had made with him. He understands that what God's promised him. You know, this is going to take a great while. He's spoken out into the future. And have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant. I mean, David is speechless. Why would God be so gracious toward him? O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness and making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you. There nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He's just overwhelmed at God's mercies toward him. And who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And notice there, Israel is not just God's people for a time. They weren't his chosen people for a period of time and then discarded. Oh no, notice God calls them his people forever. They're still God's chosen people in a very unique and in a very special way. Well, verse 23 tells us, And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever, and do as you have said, so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And my, I like that phrase. The God of Israel is Israel's God. It's sort of like saying, you're not just God in name only, but we're going to treat you like God. You're going to be our God, and we're going to relate to you as God. You really are our God, Lord. I love that. The God of Israel is Israel's God. The God of the church, Jesus Christ, Lord of the church. Is he your Lord? The Savior of the world, is He your Savior? That's the implication here. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O oh my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever for you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. David praises God for his everlasting covenant toward him. Now, chapter 18. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hands of the Philistines. It was as if God's promise to David emboldened him, empowered him, got his engines going, got him motivated again to take possession of the land and to conquer the nations around him. And then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And David defeated Hadadazir, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. I mean, David is on a roll, man. David took from him 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David also hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for a hundred chariots. Remember now, horses were implements of war. And so you hamstrung the horses so the enemy wouldn't mount up a cavalry that could attack you a second time. This was basically disarming the enemy. So you horse lovers, settle down. Verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadizir, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Tibhoth and from Chun, cities of Hadadezer, David brought a large amount of bronze with which Solomon made the bronze sea 
the pillars and the articles of bronze. In other words, the spoils of David's military victories became the materials that Solomon used to help build the temple. Now when Tohu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Tohu. And Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. Now notice this. Edom was southeast. Moab was sort of east-southeast. Ammon was east. Today, Ammon. The Syrians were north. The Philistines were west. Amalek was southwest. In other words, David had conquered his enemies all around him. He had built an incredible kingdom. He'd even opened a fast food restaurant. It's a little known fact. Actually, that is in Kabul, Afghanistan. King David's fast food. Why in the world do they have King David's fast food in Kabul, Afghanistan? Just questions that I can't answer. <laughs> Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Here's the Valley of Salt, the Valley of the Dead Sea. And here's a guy that read about it in the newspaper afterwards. He also put garrisons in Edom. And all the Edomites became David's servant. And verse 13 really sums up David's military conquests. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all his people. And he did so largely through the cabinet that's listed in the next few verses. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder or the state historian. You remember in those days they didn't have CNN and CBS and Fox News and all this kind of stuff. And so they, the king basically had to hire someone to kind of record these things for posterity and record the military conquest and record the different acts of his administration. And so state historian was an important position. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priest. Shavjah, was the scribe, literally the secretary of state, Condoleezza Rice, Shavza. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. These were the king's secret service. These were his personal bodyguards, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers at the king's side. And this is all also appears in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There is a, the same list it appears a, another time. Chapter 19. Now it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. I mean, David's motivation's pure here. He, he just wants to do a kind deed for someone who's, who's been a blessing to him. And so David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. 
And David's servants came to Hanan in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Ammon, they said to Hanan, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come up to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Don't trust a man. David's up to no good. Now, tragically, Hanan believes in his counselors more than in the good intentions of David. And he acts in a horribly rash way. Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. In other words, he was disgracing these messengers from David. You could say that he tries to outflank David's army. Here he attacks them from the rear. He fights in the light of the moon. <laughs> Hanan exposes their derriers, and it's an insult to the king who sent them. Verse 5. Then some went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. I mean, can you imagine this happening today and, you know, them clipping the seat out of their trousers and sending them back somewhere, you know, that way? It'd be an insult today, too. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. In ancient Israel, it was a shame for a man to be seen unshaven. To shave a man's beard was, in essence, to strip him of his masculinity. And so these guys were too ashamed to show their faces in public. So before they can return, they have to take time to let their, their beards grow back. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, in other words, we made a big mistake. Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Makkah, and from Zobah. Hanan, he realizes he's blown it, and he has insulted David. And he's now anticipating retaliation. And so he goes out and he hires an army of mercenaries. Verse 7. And so they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Makkah and his people who came and encamped before Medaba. Also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. In other words, Joab is prepared to fight against Ammon. But his intelligence tells him that Hanan has hired these Syrians. And so he's going to have to fight on two fronts instead of just one. And so he splits his army and he puts a second division under his brother, Abishai. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. And they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you then I will help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do 
what is good in his sight. And guys, this is how brothers ought to behave. This is how sisters ought to behave. If I look at my brother and if I see that the battle he's fighting, that he's losing, and the forces around him seem to be too strong for him, I need to go to him. And I need to offer my support. And I need to fight with him. And if he sees that the battle I'm fighting, I'm losing because the forces around me are too strong for me. I need his help. He needs to come and be willing to fight with me in the battle that I'm facing. This was good strategy. Joab and Abishai, they're acting like brothers here, as you and I need to act. And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. And so Joab went to Jerusalem. God give Israel victory without even firing a shot. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. And Shophak, the commander of Hadadazir's army, went before him. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel crossed over the Jordan and came upon them and set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And we've got some Syrian soldiers. Yeah, there's some Syrians. I don't know if these look like those guys, but these are Syrian soldiers. And then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shophak, the commander of the army. And when the servants of Hadadazir saw Shophak, the commander of the army, and when the servants of Hadadazir saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. And so the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. Fight your own battles from now on. We're tired of getting beaten by David. Chapter 20. Now it happened in the spring of the year, at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. But one of David's mighty men died in the siege of Rabbah. A man who lived in Jerusalem, in fact, just down the street from David, not too far from David's palace. For you could see from David's bedroom balcony this man's rooftop. And David's neighbor was a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah's wife was named Bathsheba. For the rest of that story, you should read 2 Samuel chapter 11. But it's interesting. It begins the same way as 1 Chronicles chapter 20 begins. Let me read it to you. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. But rather than telling us about the siege of Rabbah, instead, we're told, David arose from his bed and walked on the roof. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And of course, the fleeing that followed spawned a terrible tale of adultery and ultimately murder, eventually leading the royal family into moral decline 
and chaos throughout David's kingdom. You know, it's interesting that such an important piece of the puzzle, a story that's given a whole chapter in 2 Samuel, gets completely overlooked here in Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? But we've talked about why. Remember, Ezra penned Chronicles not to point out Israel's failures. In fact, they had just spent 70 years in exile in Babylon, in a foreign land, for punishment of their sins. These Jews were well aware of their sins and their failures. What they needed was encouragement to start over. And that's why Ezra dwells on David's successes and he minimizes his failures. Aren't you glad God treats us the same way? That through His grace, through His mercy, He's willing to forget and forgive. He's willing to overlook our past mistakes. He's willing to dwell on our successes and even minimize our failures. Aren't you glad God treats us with such grace as well? Well, verse 2 tells us, Then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold. Talent was a dry measurement of about 100 pounds. And so obviously the king didn't wear this crown for too long, not at any one time. And there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sebekai the Hushathite killed Zippi, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. Notice Goliath wasn't the only giant that David fought. 2 Samuel chapter 21 is the parallel passage to 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And Samuel mentions another incident that Ezra excludes. If you go back and you look in 2 Samuel 21, in verses 16 and 17, you'll discover that a giant by the name of Ishni Binab, Ishni Binab wanted to kill David. And he almost did. In fact, if it hadn't been for Abishai coming to David's defense at the last second, David would have been dead meat. It's interesting, though. Ezra leaves that encounter out of the Chronicles for the same reason that he excludes David's adultery with Bathsheba. His purpose is to encourage these Jews, not to frighten them. He's recalling decisive victories, not near misses. Well, again, there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Hittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Notice here, Goliath had a brother. In fact, he had four brothers. And that's why David, when he went down to the little brook to gather a stone to put in his sling that he used to kill Goliath, he didn't just pick one stone out of the brook, he picked five stones. Did you think he was worried about missing? Not so. No, he picked five stones because he knew that Goliath had four brothers. And so he got one for Goliath and he got one for the brothers in case they tried to retaliate. 
And yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he also was born to the giant. This guy was a freak of nature. Notice anything strange about that guy? He got six fingers, that's right, on one hand. So did this giant. Now imagine trying to buy shoes. Or worse, trying to buy gloves. How does a six-finger guy buy a pair of gloves? And imagine when the guy was a kid and his daddy signed him up for Little League Baseball. I mean, how do you find a glove with six fingers? It's impossible. He had to have one specially made. And of course, you know what Little League team the kid played on, don't you? You don't know? The Giants, of course. Hey, 24 digits on a kid, six fingers, six toes. He may have been on steroids. Imagine a giant on steroids. Oh, my. After 3,000 years, some things remain the same. Actually, these giants may have been on some kind of spiritual steroids. They may have been on demonic enhancers. We talked back when we went through the book of Joshua about the possibility that these giants were actually the byproduct of Canaanite practices, occult practices. Did you know that sex with demons is still a part of the occult even to this day? And it could be that these demons took on human bodies and had sex with women inside a family or two of giants. Apparently this was going on before the flood of Noah. This was one reason why God took such radical measures and wiped out you know, everyone but the family of Noah. It's probable that there's no coincidence that these giants appear at this point in history where God's people again are about to take the land that He's given them and they become the leading opposition against Israel and against the takeover. Again, it could be a very demonic thing that was going on here among these giants. Well, we're still talking about this six-fingered, six-toed giant, verse 7. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. Now remember, David's brothers were among the Israelites who cowered away at the taunts of Goliath. You remember that when David took the cheese and the goat's milk and all up to his brothers to feed his brothers and the giant would come out and he would taunt the armies of Israel and everyone would, you know, hunker down in the, you know, in the foxholes and all and they were scared to death of the giant Goliath. Before David stepped up and trusted God and went out to kill Goliath, there were no other giant killers in Israel. Everyone feared the giants. But notice here, David set an example that even his brothers followed. Notice here, this is Shimea, David's brother. He now kills a giant. What in the world's happened to these guys? Evidently, David's faith had rubbed off on his brothers and other men in Israel. You see, faith is contagious. David trusted God, and it created a whole battalion of giant killers in Israel. This is why when you step up, and you face the giants in your life. You teach your kids how to face giants. You make, turn them into little giant killers. And the people around you, you turn them into giant killers. 
And all of a sudden, you're a part of a mighty army because you've fought those battles and you've won through Jesus Christ and now others want to follow in your footsteps. I love verse 8. It sums it up. These were born to the giant in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Obviously, even David's servants got into the action. Chapter 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now some folks point to an apparent contradiction here. For 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 explains, Again the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. All right. 2 Samuel 24 says, God moved David. 1 Chronicles 21 says, Satan moved David. Which is it? The answer is both. Remember, God is sovereign. Ultimately, either God either causes or He allows all that happens in this universe. And God at times even uses Satan. Don't be surprised to learn that God at times uses the forces of darkness to accomplish His will. That doesn't excuse them. It just means God uses them. Martin Luther once referred to Satan as God's ape. God is the organ grinder. And Satan at times must dance to his tune. Apparently God saw in David's heart a sin that needed to be addressed. Pride can destroy even a good man. And so God allowed David to be tempted by the devil. And so David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. David orders a census. He wants to count the population of Israel, which was not an evil in and of itself, understand. You remember Moses numbered the people so that he could organize and he could serve the people. The problem with David's census was his motivation. David wanted a nose count so he could boast in the great extent of his kingdom, the vastness of his realm. David wanted to number the nation not for their benefit, but for his benefit. Remember too, in Bible times, counting implied ownership. Normally you don't number somebody else's stuff. You know, if you're counting my money, I'm worried about what are you about to do, you know. If you over in my house counting my stuff out in my backyard, you know, I'm going to, what are you doing here? Why are you counting my stuff? You only count your own stuff. You don't count somebody else's stuff. And David's desire to number the people of Israel sprang from a desire in his heart to flaunt the vastness of his kingdom. Satan stirred up his ego and God brought judgment on David. If we start counting so that we can, you know, run around and brag, well, our church has so many, we've got this many people. How many do you have? We have more than you have. That's the kind of stuff that displeases God. And that's the kind of thing that David gets into here and that God judges him for. You see, it all depends on your motive. Verse 3 tells us, and Joab answered. And Joab was really brave enough to question the king's motive here. He knew something was wrong. And you got to hand it to him. He shows a lot of courage here. May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, 
Are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Joab must have known something's wrong here. Your motive's not right, David. Therefore, Joab departed and he went throughout all Israel and he came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David, all Israel, had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And there are all kinds of theories as to, you read the commentaries, why did he choose those two tribes? Why didn't he count Levi? Why didn't he count Benjamin? I, I like to think he just had enough, he had all that he could stomach. He just kind of got to the point where he said, I'm just not counting anybody else. This is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. It's an abominable thing. I can't stomach anymore. Enough's enough. Well, while we're here, there's another apparent contradiction that we can clear up. The count in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 9, is different from the numbers that we have here. 2 Samuel says that Israel numbered 800,000. Here we're told 1,100,000. Judah equaled 500,000. Here we're told 470,000. Here's a possible resolution. The writer of Samuel evidently chose not to record some of the freestanding army. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says that David gathered 30,000 choice troops. Add those choice troops to Judah's 470,000 in verse 5, and you get... 500,000, the same as the number in 2 Samuel 24. 1 Chronicles 27 describes 12 divisions of 24,000 men or 288,000, round that off to 300,000, add it to 2 Samuel's 800,000, and you get 1.1 million, the number recorded in verse 5. Hey, just study the book for yourself. Just because somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, what's this? The Bible's contradicting itself. Come on, man. Look into it a little bit. Study it a little bit. There's usually an easy explanation for all these supposed apparent contradictions. I don't think there are any contradictions at all. Only apparent contradictions. Only things that you didn't look into far enough to realize that there was a good answer for them. The Bible is an inerrant book. It's God's Word. It's without error. It is inspired by the living God. And don't let anybody rob you of that confidence. Verse 7 tells us God's reaction to David's census. God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, He struck Israel. You don't want that to ever get said about you when you do something. God was displeased with this thing. That's not a good, good thing to hear. And the nation, notice, is about to get judged for the leader's sin. Hey, did you know this is why it's important that we elect godly leaders in our nation? We had a discussion about this at the dinner table last night, why it's important to vote. The reason it's important to vote is because it's not just the leader himself. If he makes bad decisions, that will get judged. But God will judge the people on behalf of the leader's bad decisions. 
The citizens who elected him, they're accountable for his actions. They're accountable for putting him in power. This is a scary thought in America today. And it is a tremendous motivation to get out and vote and make sure that you put good and godly leaders in office. Well, David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. You know, David realizes he sinned, he immediately confesses it, he repents of it. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. And you know, a seer was a person who could sort of see into the spiritual realm. And Gad served that purpose for David. He was sort of God's messenger to David. And so God says to Gad, go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. Now, David has repented. God has forgiven him. But that doesn't mean that there are not going to be some consequences for David's actions. God is merciful. God gives David an option. He gives David an opportunity to pick his punishment. In other words, David sort of gets to pick his poison here. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine... Or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you. Or else three days, the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Whenever I read this, I think of the assistant principal at South Winnetti gave me three choices. He said, you can have three days suspension. You can um, run a hundred laps around the base. I got into a fight. That's what happened. And, and I could have three days suspension. I could run a hundred laps around the baseball field or I could take three licks. I remember that option. No, none of them were good, but I took the three licks and it hurt. I mean, he used a, a I'm talking a Boat oar. I mean, if, if this happened today, the guy would be in, incarcerated somewhere for, for treating somebody. But he had a boat oar paddle about this long, and I had to lean over his desk and grab the, the backside of his desk, and he hauled off and he hit me with that boat oar three times. And I'm telling you, I still feel the pain. But I was playing baseball, and I didn't want to be suspended, and I couldn't play baseball, and I sure didn't want to run 100 laps around the baseball field, so it was my only option. Well, David, he thinks this over too. You know, what, what, what should his punishment be? He takes the three days of God's judgment. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. And here's David's rationale. For his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. David says, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just hang with God. I'll just trust God. I'd rather trust God. I'd rather rely on God's mercies than, you know, fall into the hands of man. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. How sad it is to see how one man's pride and one man's stubbornness produced such devastating effects on the people around him. 
Author F.B. Myers, he writes this of David. How deeply humbled must he have been as he saw how easily the numbers of his people, which, he had, which had caused him so much vainglory, could melt away before the blight of pestilence. 70,000 of those numbers died just like that. God was teaching David a lesson. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. And this is the heart of a godly leader. He asked God, Please don't punish others for my mistakes. And yet... That's why it's important to have a godly leader because oftentimes that happens. Verse 18. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And this spot, this piece of real estate on which this threshing floor is built becomes a very, very important piece of real estate. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. He stays at his post. Then David said to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. In other words, I want to pay top dollar for this threshing floor, this place here where the wheat was separated and beaten down. And Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in, your eye, in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I, I just, I'll just give it all to you, David. You just have it all. Verse 24. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. And so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. Today, the 35 acres that David purchased are incalculable. Today, Ornan's threshing floor is the third holiest site in Islam. It's the place where the Jewish temple stood for over a thousand years. And it's the spot where Christians believe Jesus will return, set up His throne, and rule the world. Ornan's threshing floor is otherwise known as Jerusalem's Temple Mount. And for a mere 600 shekels, 
David purchased the most priceless parcel on the planet today. Now notice, when David asks Ornan to sell him the property, Ornan tries to give it to the king. But David tells him in verse 24, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings. Notice this. With that which costs me nothing. David wants God to know that his love for him isn't stingy. It isn't sacrificial. Love doesn't hold back. Love doesn't seek a bargain. No, love is willing to pay the highest price possible. Whatever it costs to show itself to the person it loves. Let's say you get a Christmas gift you don't like. You put it away and you forget about it for a few Christmases and then one day you find it and you think, oh my, I need a Christmas gift for Pastor Sandy this year. Let me just wrap this thing up and and let me give him this old Christmas gift. Well, that would be fine. I might really enjoy it. But what if later I found out That what I received from you was something that you didn't really want. That you had considered worthless. That you had shoved in the back of a closet and didn't even think about for years. How would that make me feel? Well, this is what we do to God when we worship Him or when we serve Him with our scraps and with our spares. When we love Him with that which costs me nothing. It's a cheap love, isn't it? Love is not content with just tipping God. The concern is is not how little can I get by here in my giving. You know, you know how much can I give and you know and and, and it suffice God. Well, let me figure out the tithe and oh, oh my, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I got I need to take ten percent and of course I I need to take my deductions and and then I'll take my ten percent and and I'm not and I you write that check for. Not one penny more than that 10%. I'm going to give him just as little as I can get by with. That's not what real love says. Real love doesn't say how little can I give and still get by. Real love says how much can I afford to sacrifice for God. I want to give him my very best. I want to give God all I can possibly give him. When you serve God with that which costs you nothing, You know, that's not service at all. So often, though, we sign up, but we slop through. We do our bit, but not our best. Anytime you give to God money or service, you should be willing to give God your top dollar. Your best time, your strongest effort. And this is why I question the love of of a man and a woman who refuse to get married and prefer to live together. For if you really love someone, you'll want to express that love by paying the highest price possible, pledging the strongest commitment that you can muster. And in our society, that's marriage. Cohabitating couples, they express their love with that which costs me nothing. And that's a cheap love. And that's a love that you can't trust. Well, back on the threshing floor. David built there an altar to the Lord. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. Fire comes down from heaven, and God's judgment ceases. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time and at that place, at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Chapter 22. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. In other words, David sensed at that moment on the threshing floor of Ornon that he was standing on holy ground. And his statement here is really prophetic. For Solomon would build a temple on this exact spot, on this threshing floor. And this would become the place of burnt offering for all Israel, the threshing floor of Ornan. And so David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints, and bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance. For the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. David knew it would not be for him to build the temple. But he stockpiles materials that his son is going to use. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. And don't forget that Jesus, the son of David, is also building a temple in the world today. It's his church. It's this church. And the same should be said of any church that was said of this temple. That it was exceedingly magnificent. That it was glorious unto God. Jesus has left it to his successor, the Holy Spirit, to build such a glorious church. We are to be a witness to the world of the beauties of Jesus. And the church, just like the temple, should be built with the materials that Jesus has provided. On the cross, Jesus, King Jesus, purchased the love and the forgiveness and the power and the grace and the gifts that we need. Everything that we need to build a proper temple, a magnificent and glorious temple has been provided to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now David also encourages Solomon, verse 6. And then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon... My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And for the first time, we're told here why God refused to let David build the temple. It wasn't because he had been in any way improper, but it was just... God didn't want a man of war to construct a house of peace. And so David became disqualified. It's interesting, Solomon means peaceable. The remainder of the chapter is David's advice to Solomon. David recounts God's word to him. 
Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord. 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver. Remember, a talent weighed how much? 100 pounds. Figure that out. And bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters, and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Now, 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver alone at today's market prices would make the ticket for the temple $125 billion dollars. And David is basically saying to his son here that the money is in the bank. I've stored this up for you, Solomon. Arise and begin working and the Lord be with you. And I can't help but to think that that's what Jesus is saying to us tonight. All that you and I, all that we need to build a glorious temple, both personally and corporately, has been provided for us by Jesus Christ. But it is still up to us to arise and begin working. And the Lord will be with us. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has He not given you rest on every side? For He has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before His people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. And I wish I had time to go into all of the parallels between Jesus and David and the contributions that each of them make toward building the church and the temple. Both provide a successor. Both provide rest from their enemies or peace. Both provide materials and wisdom and encouragement and workmen and a diversity of gifts and talents among the workers and the support of elders. We could go on and on. But just remember, no matter what all David provided, Solomon still had to rise up and build. And no matter what Jesus provides us, we still have a role to play. 